I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture with me, Podrick Reedy. This week, critic Christine Smallwood with her debut novel, The Life of the Mind. Christine Smallwood is a contributing editor at Harper's Magazine and for several years wrote the Harper's New Books column. She's a frequent contributor to New York Times Magazine and to Book Forum, and she has also written for The New Yorker and T. Her fiction has been published in N Plus One, Vice and The Paris Review. Christine Smallwood, welcome to Little Adams. Thank you for having me. Uh, great. Um, as always, uh, we'll start by asking you, um, what is uh, your new novel, The Life of the Mind, all about? Okay, so let's see if I can do this. <laughs> the Life of the Mind. Um, okay, so the protagonist of the novel is an adjunct professor of English who lives in New York City. Her name is Dorothy. And when the novel opens, she um, has had a miscarriage. Uh, the miscarriage occurred six days ago, but she's still dealing with the sort of ongoing uh, bleeding and discharge from the miscarriage. And as the book progresses, um, sort of time in the novel is linked to the events that are taking place inside her body. Um, Dorothy has um, a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And she has a best friend. Uh, she has two therapists. Um, and uh, she has the second therapist who she goes to to talk about her uh, feelings of dissatisfaction with the first therapist. And as the book goes on, we just sort of like get a tour of her life and her mind. And um, I guess I don't want to like give away. I I think there's like a spoiler in the book, but there is an event that happens with her best friend that brings a kind of coherence to the the plot around the miscarriage. It's been, I think, quite recently in an an essay in The Nation, um, someone described it as part of an adjunct lit being a a thing. Um, I guess it'd be a good start to kind of explain the kind of of role of the adjunct professor. I don't know, we we don't quite have the exact equivalents in in the UK. We've closed, but not quite. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so uh, Dorothy has a PhD in English, um, and she does not have a tenure track job. So she's on a kind of renewing contract. And we don't get a lot of details about like where exactly she teaches. Um, We're told that she has four classes, I think. 
And um, the deal with adjuncts is that they're just not very well paid. Um, they don't have health insurance. And so it's a sort of way of extending one's time in the academy without having any of the job security that is supposed to be the big advantage of, of being in the academy. Mm-hmm. And she's, there's a lot, I guess, in this, in the novel, about, and we can we'll kind of come back in there, really, but there's a lot in the book about kind of, for want of a better phrase, status anxiety, I think, really, within the, within, within the academy itself, but more broadly in life, in terms of, you know, how are you, you know, <clears throat> about what Dorothy's position in life should be at this point, or what her expectation is. Where exactly she teaches. Um, we're told that she has four classes, I think. And um, the deal with adjuncts is that they're just not very well paid. Um, they don't have health insurance. And so it's a sort of way of extending one's time in the academy without having any of the job security that is supposed to be the big advantage of, of being in the academy. Mm-hmm. And she's, there's a lot, I guess, in this, in the novel about, and we can we'll kind of come back in there, really, but there's a lot in the book about kind of, for want of a better phrase, status anxiety, I think, really, within the, within, within the academy itself, but more broadly in life, in terms of, you know, how are you, you know, <clears throat> about what Dorothy's position in life should be at this point, or what her expectation is. <clears throat> yeah, so Dorothy's in her 30s, which I think is a time that most people, um, if they kind of have a traditional, like, building arc of what their life will be like. That's a time when people should, in quotes, should be, uh, you know, have acquired capital. Maybe you own an apartment, maybe you're married, maybe you have children, maybe you have a steady career, but Dorothy still feels that she's in this kind of limbo and um, the sort of like effective landscape of the book is all about that contingency. I mean, the word precarity has gotten used a lot talking about the book. And um, yeah, she does have a kind of anxiety about not being, I think, where she had assumed she would be. Um, And then her best friend who has inherited wealth is the kind of like contrast with her that she's always kind of comparing herself to. Mm -hmm. I think there's um, there's quite a bit um, about quite a lot about the topic specifically to different people who were taught to be on this in the track and very clearly kind of people who were, you know, in the in the postgrad kind of con rooms together, people who were you know, even ex-boyfriends who were like very, you know, are all kind of seem to be on track and seem to be doing things very coherently. But there's there's a I guess um tied into that is and something that pops up again and again is is Dorothy's sense of of narrative. That there is that there there is and should be a progression to things. Yeah, I mean, I think like Dorothy is trying to figure out what it means to live in a world where that that traditional narrative is no longer operating. So, you know, one of the things I did in the book was I put the ending right. The end of the pregnancy happens at the beginning of the book, right? And so, and then the, one of like the things I was thinking when I was writing was, okay, if we put the ending at the beginning, then what happens after the supposed end? Mm-hmm. And in Dorothy's case, there's a sense of like things feel like they're ending, but nothing ever actually ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like the the pregnancy is one situation of that, but then of course the job situation is another. In, in the the, mis- the, 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 the miscarriage itself just just continues, really. It, 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 it's, it was no, for an unusually long time, but never seems to be 
nothing resolves. Yeah, exactly. It just kind of lingers. Yeah. Mm. Um, going back to the, the, the pregnancy and the miscarriage, I think there's something again in, in Dorothy's parents comes out. We never get a sense of the tying in with the kind of where you're supposed to be in your 30s and having a baby. Mm-hmm. So we never quite get a sense of whether um, Dorothy really wanted the pregnancy or not. You know, it's not. It's yeah. it's, it's it's neither a, it's neither a tragedy or a blessing that the that the that the, the pregnancy is avoided in the end. Exactly. I mean, I think one of the things that I wanted to show with this character was to think about how um, sort of difficult it is for her to know what she wants. And so um, we're told in the book that the miscarriage occurred like before she had decided whether she was going to keep the pregnancy. And of course, like a pregnancy is you know, outside of a miscarriage, it's something that one really does make a choice about, you know, at a certain point, you have to like, you know, either continue the pregnancy, or you have to terminate the pregnancy. Um, And then in this case, she sort of feels like the agency of making the choice has been taken away from her. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like an example of her general inability to feel like very much of an agent um, in her life across the board. Yeah. yeah, and her partner Rog, Rog or Rog, Rog is, is 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 somewhat. I guess he's somewhat. No, I don't want to say not part of it because that sounds terribly kind of entitled. But there, there is there is always a sense that that that, that Rog is semi distant. Yeah, uh, at least. Yeah, and I think Dorothy, you know, she makes it very clear that she feels like whatever she's going through, she feels like it's it's her thing, that yeah. it's not a shared experience. So there's a degree of distance built into the relationship. And I think, I mean, I think people, people obviously have different impressions of the character of Raj. I think that we're invited to see that there was something like adaptive and good about the distance in the relationship. But then in this circumstance, it becomes a kind of deepening of her isolation. Yeah, I think she she's said something to the effect that um that she appreciates the fact that she that he grants her this privacy, but it's never quite made clear whether how happy he is with with, with that or or as you say, is that actually her convincing herself that that you know that isolation is what she wants. Yeah, and he's the only male character in the book. I mean, there's a sort of walk-on of a of a man that Dorothy knew in graduate school, but in terms of like characters that Dorothy actually really yeah. has substantive interactions with, he's the only he's the only man. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned she has a friend, um, Gabby, um, who provides somewhat of, in a lot of ways provides some of the contrast. Um, tell us a little bit about Gabby's Gabby and Gabby's role, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, Gabby is Dorothy's best friend. Um, and I, But th- like the relationship with Raj, there's a certain amount of distance and deception built into it. I mean, I guess one of the things about the book I haven't said yet is that the miscarriage is a secret. So Dorothy hasn't, the only person who knows is Raj and then her doctor, obviously. But so all throughout the book, whenever she's interacting with Gabby, there's always this sense that she's withholding or keeping this information from one of the people who might be able to help her with her feelings around it. And so there's a way that she's always kind of like seeking care and then sort of refusing it. You know, she has two therapists, but with neither of them is she discussing the actual most important thing that's going on. Mm-hmm. I think that there, there's a sense that we see at a few times throughout the um throughout the book, not just that Dorothy lied to, to kind of keep things secret, but she actually lies about things 
in order to in order to keep them private rather than simply just not telling people she actively deceives people about her life yeah i mean she goes from withholding to actually lying and kind of like at the point of the book or i think in another novel you might have like a breakthrough moment or a moment when two people who haven't been communicating well finally communicate or like have a moment of real intimacy in this book it's actually a moment of like deepening isolation and there is an intimacy and a connection that happens, but it's built on a lie. Mm. I'm really glad you brought up the, um, the point of uh, there being a breakthrough moment or anything like that. And, yeah. the, and the lack thereof. Because it's something that really comes up again and again for what I was reading is that, is that Dorothy herself is constantly looking for some kind of epiphany or breakthrough moment. And the thing that I really enjoyed was um, the description of, um, of other people's other people's PhDs. Uh, yeah. There was um, Alex, yeah, touched maybe about um, Alexandra and, and Doors. So um, Dorothy um, had a member of her cohort when she was in graduate school named Alexandra, whose research was on Doors in the novel. And it's, I guess it's a joke. I mean, <laughs> it's a joke about some areas of scholarly inquiry. <laughs> Yeah. But she, but the doors, you know, there is nothing, you know, there's nothing, you know, to, to terribly hackneyed. There's nothing on the other side of the door. It's just, it's an entire thesis that's just, there are, there are some doors. Yeah, yeah. Or, and like, you know, who, who made them? I mean, I think Alexandra is like a kind of historicist, you know, she probably knows everything about the factory where doors are manufactured at the time the book was written or whatever. But um, it's meant to like, highlight how Dorothy is always angsting about her own work and and her own ideas. And then there are these people who sort of traipse through the world just like doing whatever and seeming to have like no problems about it. I mean, we do find out at a certain point that Alexandra's path has not been quite as easy as it looks, um, but her her research is a bit a bit silly. Although Dorothy then does say that she feels like maybe there could be something really interesting to be done with doors. But it hasn't been done by Alexandra. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that's the thing, I get it. As I say, it's, it's all she wants to, you know, her research, you know, again, it can't, she doesn't seem to be satisfied with the idea that you could just write something that's quite interesting and leave it at that. Yeah, but, I mean, I think like, for me, the book is like so much about shame and like, the shame around the pregnancy, but also the shame around writing in general. And, you know, the one thing that the book really does like really withhold is Dorothy's own intellectual project. You know, like we're, we know that she's this PhD, like we know that she's a adjunct professor, like presumably this is what her life is built around. And yet we have only like the most cursory um, gloss on what her research is supposed to be about. And we don't really see her doing her own research. We see her kind of preparing for her classes. And so it feels to me like that's really the sort of like black hole of the book is this person who's always thinking about ideas, but is unable to kind of like share the most important idea, which I think is like true for a lot of writers, you know, like sharing your work is, is so scary. Um, I first, came across your writing um, through Harper's, um, and you, you know, you've got you know, you've considerable representation, I guess, as a, as a critic. Um, and it's something that I suppose reading that and knowing you're a critic, um, reading the book, the novel, knowing, knowing your work as a critic, kind of 
got me thinking a little bit about, again, it's that, that professionalization, whether it's in academia or in, or in, um, in, in you know, criticism in, in magazines and so on, does that, for what, does that suck the joy out of, out of, out of literature in that, in that everything has to be analyzed and, and you know, contextualized and given meaning or derived for its lack of meaning that, that there is no, you know, Dorothy is stuck in the old second position where, where she is she is very stuck in that mode where something again is being you know, has to be there has to be narrative and there has to be meta narrative and there has to be everything has to leave something else and have some meaning and she finds it it's frustrating when it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know it's interesting the question like do we does criticism does writing about things make us have take less joy in them I mean for me it's kind of the opposite you know just like personally I think that um uh I find that I get the most out of something when I write about it you know and then the relationship is a bit tortured I mean what happens to me is like if I've written about something then I don't really want to think about it again so that is for me like the big problem like I'll do a piece about a writer but then I don't want to read anything else that they necessarily do because it almost just feels like I've I don't know why I don't know how to explain that or like a piece if I like a review a, a film I'm I then kind of don't really want to keep up with that person anymore although mm. I will um that's kind of like a weird thing but Dorothy I think actually does like have moments of joy about reading and literature you know like there's a scene where she kind of makes a connection between a poem that she's teaching in class and something she sees on the subway and mm. I think we're kind of meant to see that her intellectual life is just so like intermingled with her lived experience that there isn't really any separating them yes I think there there's there's always you know there, there's always an angle there's always analysis there's always and as you say, I mean, there, there is there is a, a very beautifully rendered scene where she essentially sees the ancient mariner on the subway. Yeah, I mean, it's like what like what is real life? You know, like it's like she under I, I, like she you know there's an, there's a scene also where she's looking at a sonogram and she's thinking about the magic mountain. And I just think that we're meant to understand that this is just like this is how she sees. Yeah. 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 Which, as you say, I, I guess in some ways it does. I don't want to sound like I'm kind of some, you know, dying for like the raw and unfiltered experience. But in some ways, it, it gives her greater, greater depth and greater feeling if she if she can relate, you know, an everyday, you know, an everyday scene to a grand narrative to to, to something as as epic as 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 the, as the ancient mariner. Yeah, um, that become becomes a more fundamentally deep and even even real thing. Um, the relationship with Dorothy's relationship with her psychologist, with her psychiatrist, that is a yeah. is a fascinating one. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit more about that. So she has these two therapists. The first is kind of what I think of as a like traditional Upper West Side of Manhattan therapist who has like an office with sort of like global decor and is a little bit like maternal and motherly and how she treats Dorothy. And then she has this sort of younger downtown therapist who she finds out early in the book is going to have a podcast, um, at, but is not inviting Dorothy to be 
to be on the podcast. Like she's gonna, I don't know if you, if you ever watch like couples therapy on Showtime or, you know, there's Esther Perel, obviously. So that she's more like that kind of therapist. Um, and so Dorothy finds a way to just kind of like feel um, uh, like rejected by, mm. by, by that therapist. Because her stories are just like not, not like sympathetic or relatable or interesting enough to, to be brought to a wider audience. <laughs> <laughs> Even though she you know, very clearly never wanted to be on the podcast, but you can still be upset by not being invited. Yeah. yeah. of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wagovi and zeb pound for those who qualify plus they accept most insurance plans To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms with me, Padraig Reedy. Um, we're talking to Christine Smallwood, whose book, um, The Life of the Mind, has just been published in the UK by Europa Editions. Um, Christine, we talked a lot in the first half about, about Dorothy in books need for for narrative um and the other but the other thing that looms largely over the book um is the ultimate the ultimate narrative literally the ultimate narrative of of the apocalypse right <laughs> she she's she's teaching a class on the apocalypse um climate change obviously you know weighs very heavily on her mind um and we also discovered that she's she's come from quite a religious background. No, it's, 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 it's suggested that she comes from quite a religious background. Um, how much do you think, you know, which I know you, you, you do yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. How much do you think that that religious background forces her to think about things in, in the way she's in these apocalyptic terms? I mean, I think, I guess I see her as someone, and this, I guess I see her as someone who, 
had derived meaning from her religious upbringing and then had sort of lost that and then transferred that to the world of academia or intellectual work and is sort of experiencing a crisis around that as well. And so feels herself to be in a bit of a bit of free fall. I think that I think that her relationship to the miscarriage is heavily inflected by the idea of having had a religious background. Like I think she no longer would accept that a like person has died. She wouldn't say that, you know, a life began at the conception, but she isn't totally comfortable with um, the idea that nothing happened. And so she feels like a bit stranded and is a bit, I think, you know, it's a sort of minor emotion. I wouldn't really call it grief, but there's, but there's something else going on for her um, mm. that makes, that makes her kind of hold on to the, the pregnancy loss in a different way. And then in terms of her teaching her intellectual interests. Yeah. I mean, I think that she also like many thinking people today is wondering like, well, how, what do we do with the fact that, that the climate isn't, I mean, like now I'm just kind of stuttering, but um what does it mean to live and write at this particular point in human history, I guess is what I would say. Mm. And for, for Dorothy, this manifests itself in you know, what is very depressing, but also very funny motif of, of, of the Roth children. Um, yeah, she has this vision of the sort of children of the future um, asking her like why she didn't do more, you know, and then she tries to kind of um, defend herself and but she really can't mm. which sounds yeah the reading again this morning she just sounds it, it, it does confront you very much at this point which is she she signed an online petition um yeah. things like yeah we've we've all done that and we are all being we will all be judged if not if not by god but then certainly by these future off children but yeah i definitely think like judgment is is a big thing that dorothy is reckoning with and the kind of feeling that something or someone will or should be judging her, you know, mm. and the kind of since she experiences maybe the absence of that as a kind of loss as well. Mm -hmm. I think that there's, I mean, the relationship with with the psychologist, with the psychiatrist, I keep saying that, with the psychiatrist, with the with her PhD supervisor, the the yeah. with Judith, um, her PhD supervisor, who is someone who can who can grant legitimacy. Right. At, the, at the stroke of a pen, quite literally. Um, speaking of, of, of the, the, the interview with Judith, so um, Judith turns up early on, as you've mentioned, and as this background figure. And then we, we're, we're kind of confronted with her at this, um, this academic trip to, to, to symposium in, in, in Vegas, which seems, mm -hmm. for I guess for, for a European, a very strange place to have, to have an academic conference. <laughs> <laughs> they happen everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but it, 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 and I think that the, the I guess yeah the, the 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 strange and the discussion of this like kind of you know, the 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 feeling among people there that you have to be kind of we're in Vegas we have to do Vegas things is really interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, if you've been to an academic conference, you know that there is a certain amount of just sort of like leaving the conference to do other things that will go on. And so if the conference is in a place like Vegas, people are going to go and, you know, walk on the strip or gamble at the casinos or just sort of marvel at the, the Vegasness. Mm -hmm. But there's even where, where Dorothy feels kind of 
and I've, I've never, I've never been to, to Vegas, so I'm sure this it is what happens. He feels very obliged to to spend to, to gamble to spend some money on slot machines, which he doesn't seem to take any joy from whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, I think everyone should go to Vegas at least once. It's like a pretty interesting. It's a pretty interesting place to go. <laughs> Um, it's yeah. sorry, sorry. No, no, go on. It's something that Judith talks about in the conversation in Vegas, in, in Vegas with um, with Dorothy about you know, Vegas itself being a, a um, an artistic or imaginative creation. The, 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 the fact that they've they've decided they're just right. We're going to make Venice. What we want, we want Venice. We'll we'll, we'll just make it. Right, uh, right. And it will be the only Venice, I think, is what they they talk about. How when actual Venice is underwater, like this Venice will still will still be there. Mm-hmm. Which I guess is it's, it's just a, it's interesting view of kind of, you know, of the act of create creation and narrative creation, but how you kind of well, it, it exists. You can't you know, there will be a point, as you say, where it will be the only one. So whether it's the true one or not, you know, right. becomes then an interesting point for debate. Right. I was looking at some, some of the reviews that came in. Um, my favourite was definitely John Self in The Times, who said, called it 200 pages of solid entertainment. <laughs> it's okay. I know. I'm sure it hasn't like sounded super fun to people listening, but um, <laughs> I'm, glad that, <laughs> I'm glad that he enjoyed it. But I, he didn't, but I enjoyed it. And I found myself laughing out loud a lot. And, you know, and there, there are, you know, it's been very clear to us, as you say, it can send, deals with some fairly complex things, but it is very, very funny. Is that something that you kind of, I guess, you know, when you're creating that kind of, creating the character, I mean, she doesn't, is she consciously funny? Um, is Dorothy trying to be funny? I, I don't really know how to answer that. I mean, I for me, like as the author, I wanted Dorothy to be extremely vulnerable. And I, I do think that like in extreme vulnerability, we, we find a lot of humor, you know? But I mean, I think, I, I do think the book is funny. I also think it's sad, hmm. you know? And I think it exists like right at that place where um, sadness and, and humor come together. And I'm not sure... Um, I don't consider Dorothy to be someone who's like cracking jokes exactly, but I think her way of looking at the world is very like deadpan and she has like a very dark sense of humor about things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I do like, for me, the, I, I just wanted, I mean, I found the book really like, I find it really kind of excruciating, you know, because it's like, so I feel she's so raw to me. Mm. Yeah. There's, there's, she is, there, there is, I think, as I said, what comes through for me, I mean, is, is there, there is an enormous vulnerability. I think that that's very clearly expressed and a slight um, inability to, to move in either yeah. direction. Yeah, she's very stuck and feels herself to be very stuck. And, um, and when the book ends, I think we sense that she has like a little bit more um, there's a little bit more movement in her than there was before, but it's not uh, a ton, you know, it's not like there's been like a huge, you know, overthrowing of the way things were. And now she's a totally different person. Mm-hmm. But there may be, maybe a small perspective shift. Yeah. I think that there's been a shift at the end. So mm-hmm. yeah. Not to give too much away. Um, Christine, can I ask you to read from the book? 
Yeah, I thought that I would read from a scene towards the end um, when she's at a, a party with Gabby and they're going to do karaoke. Is that is that okay? So all you really need to know is that um, Dorothy is at a party at her friend Gabby's house. And how much should I read? Like two, two pages? Is that good? Two pages, perfect. Okay. Around midnight, Raj nudged Dorothy and cocked his head. Gabby was hauling out a karaoke machine. The sight of the machine filled Dorothy with dread. Shit, she said. For a long time, she had loved karaoke. Honestly, she had loved it too much. The love was frantic, but also complex, a complexity born of her desire to expose herself and be known and her concomitant dread of exposing herself and being known. Of all the forms this conflict had ever taken in her life, karaoke was the purest. Do you want to leave while we still can? Raj asked. Yes, Dorothy said, but I think it's too late. Gabby was plugging wires into the TV with calm efficiency, a modern day Hans Kostorp running the gramophone in the sanitarium salon. They used to do it in private rooms. At first, it had all been so new and enchanting. The sticky darkness, the bizarre accompanying videos about which someone always had something to say, the caterwauling audible from inside the bathroom when the nights other people were passing and other private rooms leaked into your own. And all this inside the dark and deep alcohol cocoon. Inside this cocoon, her voice was so good, so strong. It was amplified and loud enough to fill her head. Her friends and their friends were so beautiful. She could see their souls shining. It was an unbearable burden to love them so much. The problem with karaoke in those years was that it was so hard for it to end. And sometimes, depending on what kind of liquor she was drinking, in the later slash earlier hours of the morning, Dorothy became morose or fell into a funk as dark and soft as dirt. She might rouse herself out of it if someone encouraged her to sing again, or she might keep falling if someone started to sing a melancholy song. There was a variety of funk that Dorothy liked settling into, aided by nostalgic songs, when she felt the fragility of her ebbing youth and the sweet ache of pleasure she had known or missed. There was another funk that was loneliness and grief, and sometimes these two funks blended together into an overpowering pang of life and death, in which Dorothy experienced the smallness of her being knit into the large, incomprehensible whole of everything else. Great passions were expressed and mourned. She would come home wound up like a clock, pulsing with all the songs sung and unsung, running on anxiety and regret, amped up and disappointed, wanting more and also wanting to have had much less. So The Life of the Mind is published by Europa and is available now. Christine Smallwood, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was presented by me, Podrick Reedy, and edited by Sky Redman. Little Atoms is supported by 8-9-Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. And remember to check out littleatoms.com for a full archive. Thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.